to the Red Light Report. Your number one source for all things red light therapy. Where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, guys, welcome back to the Red Light Report. And today I am extremely, extremely excited to have a conversation with an actual photobiomodulation expert and researcher. It is Dr. Praveen Arani, and he is trained as a dentist and an oral pathologist. He completed a joint PhD residency program at Harvard University and as a Harvard Presidential Scholar. He has two certificates in clinical translational research from Harvard Medical Center and the National Institute of Health. And that's not all. Hang on, folks. He has over 100 scientific publications with several well-cited papers to his credit. He is a recipient of numerous awards and has been invited to speak in various national and international forums and reviews for over 50 scientific journals and serves on nine journal editorial boards. His work has over 5,500 citations. And besides his academic interests in clinical translational research, Dr. Arani has co-founded three biotechnology companies to translate his lab research into real-world practical solutions to improve clinical care. And lastly, the overall scientific focus of the Arani lab is to identify key biological regulatory components that can be used in clinical studies to control biological outcomes. His research is predominantly focused on the molecular mechanisms and clinical translation of low-dose light treatments, of course termed photobiomodulation therapy, to alleviate pain or inflammation and promote tissue healing and regeneration. So without further ado, Dr. Arani, welcome to the Red Light Report. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you and your audience. Yes, we're very excited to have you on board. Let's just hear your origin story quickly of as far as how you got pulled into the field of light or light therapy or photobiomodulation and how you've become such an expert in this field. So like most of us in the field, I started as a non-believer, right? I, I did not think, you know, the human body is like the plant where you can actually take sunlight and do photosynthesis. I never thought of light as a therapeutic tool when I started my training. This was back in uh, the late 1990s when I was training as a dentist. And I saw some of the original work that Dr. Mester had uh, published about wound healing. And as a dentist, we see a lot of patients who come to us with tooth extraction wounds who need to, you know, have dentures placed or implants placed. So my clinical motivation was if I can accelerate this healing, then I can continue much more quickly uh, with less pain and more comfort for the patient and try to, you know, improve my clinical care. So that was my original motivation. And this was like 22, 23 years ago that I thought there's no way that this can be real. How can you shine light on somebody and make them better? My research over the years has shown a very specific molecular pathway. Just like you have rhodopsin in your eye that takes invisible light and makes it into a signal that the body perceives as vision. It turns out that, and I'm sure you and your audience are very familiar with it, there are known molecular mediators of how light can be converted into a therapeutic biological signal. So most of our research now is focused on what kind of light, how much light, how often do we provide the light, and what treatments can we treat. So 
The good news with this field, I'm sure you appreciate this, is that it can do a lot of wonderful things. The bad news is it can do a lot of wonderful things. So uh, I think that's where we lose a lot of our audiences. How can one treatment do so many fantastic things from Parkinson's, Alzheimer's to improve performance, anti-aging, I think, which is a big major focus. So it, it can do a lot of wonderful things. It cannot be the same mechanism, right? It can't be the same thing in every cell type, but it does have a wonderful spectrum of effects. And that has kept us busy for the last uh, two decades. And that, that, that's a good segue, Dr. Arani, into one of my questions is, as a researcher, I'm kind of curious, do you call it red light therapy or do you just call it photobiomodulation? Because I know for some researchers or some people, red light therapy is kind of like saying Voldemort. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm curious what your take is on that. So a colleague of mine actually did a very careful search of the literature on what can these treatments be called? Because we wanted to understand if these are different treatments or if this is the same treatment. Turns out that there are over 300 different terms available for different forms of light treatment. I'm sure all of us have gone to PubMed and done searches on PubMed for different types of treatments. In 2014, we had a meeting in Arlington, Virginia, where a group of researchers globally came together. This is the joint NALT, North American Association, and the World Association for Photobiomodulation. I was the incoming president at that point. And we had a consensus meeting on what should we call this so that, you know, we have some kind of genuine recognition in the scientific community. The most popular, as you know, is the low-level light treatment or low-level laser treatment. And it became very difficult to start explaining to people what low means, low what, right? And level of what, that is not very descriptive. The other terms uh, people use are cold laser treatment or red light treatment or LED treatments. And again, to try and make it all encompassing in terms of what this treatment is and what it can be done with. We try to come up with a term that catches all of it. And that's why photobiomodulation made a lot of sense because we're using photons. It doesn't matter if it's a laser or an LED that can give you that photon. Biomodulation stands for modulating a biological response. It can reduce pain or inflammation at a given dose, but at the same time, with a different dose and a different delivery technique, you can improve tissue healing and regeneration and potentially modulate the immune system. There's a lot of exciting work now with the ability to modulate the immune responses, both in chronic diseases as well as in cancers. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. 
There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.s-h-o-p. So, so you're saying that the, the term photobiomodulation is actually a relatively new or young term, it kind of came, did you say from that 2014 meeting or such? The 2014 meeting was a consensus on what, as a community, we should call it so that it gets credibility. The term was used in the early 80s or late 80s, I should say. Uh, Dr. Harry Whelan, who did the first LED NASA light treatment, if you really look up the literature, his work with the NASA lights was very popular because NASA was funding his research. And he used that term then. Dr. Tina Carew used it in her seminal paper where she was talking about cytochrome C oxidase. Uh, and then several investigators since have been using it on and off uh, when they're trying to explain both the inhibitory and the stimulatory effect, because otherwise you get slotted into stimulation or inhibition. But this treatment modulates it, and it seems to understand when to do it. So if you have a spasm or a, a sore, it seems to note that it has to reduce the inflammation and pain. Or if you have a wound that is not healing, it can stimulate that healing response. So the modulate part seems to make more sense than inhibition or stimulation. No, that makes sense. It's more encompassing and really does describe what's going on at, at a deeper level. Because a lot of times you hear, and even I'm guilty of saying this, that it helps reduce inflammation when in fact it modulates it, it increases or decreases as, as necessary. So that all that all makes perfect sense. May, may I make another point? I, sure, I sure, go ahead. Go ahead. So uh, all of us use PubMed to do our scientific searches. This is the National Library of Medicine scientific database. This term, photobiomodulation, has been accepted as a MESH term, a medical subject head term. So what this does is essentially collates all the literature that's been published with LLLT, cold lasers, light therapy generally. It just collates all that literature. So we don't lose any literature, but now there's a centralized term that captures all these. No, that's really good to know. I didn't know that. So you're saying if, if you're going to look up anything relative to this topic on PubMed, use the the term photobiomodulation, and that encompasses all of those 300 plus terms you were talking about. Close to, I wouldn't say it's gotten there yet, but very close to that. Gotcha, gotcha. No, that's good to know. From your perspective, especially since you're so entrenched in the photobiomodulation realm, what is the current landscape of the photobiomodulation research and uh, kind of what areas of health and wellness that it can impact are you most excited about right now? So there is a growing number of excellent controlled clinical studies on recovery from injury. Some of the leaders in the field have looked at both sports performance as well as aging-associated loss of function, right? There's another group that's working with neurocognition and how we can improve responsiveness to you know, different injuries, but also improve performance. So those two large areas of performance-based medicine have benefited from this treatment, both from the neuromuscular as well as from the cognitive. They have done this in the context of healthy people or aging populations where this is necessary, but they have also done this in the context of chronic diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, 
or sarcopenia, cancer-associated sarcopenia. It's amazing. This literature is really, really catching on because the buy-in has been it supplements regular treatment. It doesn't replace treatment. It is such an innocuous uh, treatment, you know, shining light on yourself that people think it's doing nothing for the longest time. But if it's adding to your health, your state of wellness and health, I think that's where it's making a real impact because it's getting a buy-in. There are other areas where it is still research-oriented, areas with tissue healing and stem cell regeneration. There are lots of good research studies and some clinical reports, but we still need a lot of good clinical trials in that space. The most buy-in has been in the area of supportive cancer care. There is now clinical practice guidelines for the use of this treatment for every patient who gets chemo or radiation preventively. So even before you get chemo or radiation, which if you think about it is a form of injury, you're trying to kill the tumor cell, but unfortunately we also hurt the host. So by providing light treatment before you get chemo radiation, you precondition the individual for the coming trauma. As you know, preconditioning, before you run an Olympic race, you need to train. So the body is kind of being told that by the light treatment, by the photobiomodulation treatment. And it seems to work wonderfully. So we have very, very convincing, randomized, blinded, multi-center trials showing that this treatment can prevent or reduce the incidence of cancer complications, especially from chemo radiation. And that brings up a pretty interesting topic, cancer, because one of the main, I guess, mechanisms of, of photobiomodulation is that it increases ATP production or energy production, which may be seen as kind of a, a, a negative potential effect on cancer, which is like this uh, high rate of cell division. So can you explain how photobiomodulation is working in a positive way during cancer, like you're saying with cancer treatments versus being potentially antagonistic or, or uh, progressing uh, the cancer or malignancy? Yeah. So uh, this is a very, very common question. So when we are talking about treating cancer patients, the last thing we want to do is cause any worsening of the situation, right? So we get asked this question all the time when we talk about the cancer guidelines. So this is what we say in these situations. So oxygen and water are critical for our bodily function, but too much oxygen or too much water or in the wrong place at the wrong time can kill you. So that is the story with ATP and even ROS, which is the other flip side of, you know, the most well understood, one of the most popular mechanisms, which is the cytochrome C oxidase absorption of light which transiently increases ATP and ROS. ATP is an absolutely essential molecule for the normal function of the cell. But ATP is also critical for cell death, apoptosis. ROS has the same story. So ROS is critical for your endothelial and cardiac myocyte functions. It is also critical for macrophages so that they can kill intracellular organisms. Their neutrophils have very specific hydrogen peroxide lysosomes, which actually fuse and kill them. So ROS in low numbers at the right place is good for you. And we use hydrogen peroxide to clean our wounds. Another good example of how ROS can be helpful. But too much ROS can cause aging and cancer. We know that as well. So PBM treatments induces ATP and ROS. But in the context in which it is induced, it seems to be doing very different things. We have taken normal cells and tumor cells in the lab and treated them with photobiomodulation. Uh, at different doses, different wavelengths. The normal cells take this good energy and do good things with it. They tend to migrate, differentiate, proliferate, uh, heal tissues. 
tumor cells take the same energy and commit suicide. They actually undergo apoptosis and autophagy. And this has been a striking difference in the same energy being given to two different cell types, and they are behaving in a very different way. We know that the tumor cell is like a normal cell, but it is out of control. It has all these regulatory pathways which have been put up, which gives it a growth advantage. That's how it survives. Uh, it is not like it suddenly has a titanium armor or it has you know, something unique about it. For every practical biological purpose, it has the same constituents, but they are wired differently. So it takes this energy, but it creates a bad situation for itself, eliminating. And again, there needs to be a lot more good studies on this, but the most work has been done with oral mucositis and photobiomodulation, where we have very strong clinical evidence that it helps treatments. And uh, uh, one of the leading researching researcher groups in Brazil uh, has been doing this treatment for over 10 years now. And they have published some striking results where oral mucositis prevention with photobiomodulation also resulted in less secondary tumors or metastatic primaries in this field, indicating that, yes, they are able to complete the treatments, cancer treatments, because, you know, they have, uh, they have no complications. So they get the entire uh, chemo or radiation treatment. But it also creates an environment that is not good for tumor cells. That kind of brings up another great topic, Dr. Arani, especially with your background as a dentist and oral pathologist. I've been super impressed with how robust the research, the photobiomodulation research is for oral health. And you spoke to one of the top ones in oral mucositis. Can you speak on other advantages of using red and near-infrared light in your mouth. One of the top ones that come to mind is improving your oral microbiome and all the health implications, not just for your oral cavity, but systemically. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on other ways that red and near-infrared light is, is beneficial for your oral cavity or, or your body as a downstream effect. Right. So there is some really, really interesting research coming out from uh, several groups in Australia, but John Mitrofanis's group and Dr. Ann Liebert's group has actually led some of the work on the microbiome studies, where they have shown that light treatment in the head and neck area, but also discreetly on the gut, seems to modulate the microbiome in a therapeutic manner. The general feeling is that the bugs are bad for you and uh, you know the human body does not like them. But we have a very synergistic existence with them because they are great for our gut health and for our oral health. We have now realized that eliminating them either with brushing or scaling or even taking antibiotics is not good because in the long term, it actually hurts us because it allows the bad bugs to populate. So the good guys keep the bad guys out by actually existing. Photobiomodulation, usually we think about it in terms of quantum sensing because we are thinking of photons interacting with biological systems. And there's a whole fascinating field of quantum biology that has begun to look at photobiomodulation as another source of you know, investigation. But now with all the work with microbiome, there is another field of quorum sensing. How do bugs talk to each other? And there is some very interesting work with uh, the ability of light to modulate this communication. So uh, you will see, I think, increasingly and more exciting literature and research studies and clinical studies proving this. So to complete this thought, we always think about probiotics and prebiotics as health supplements. We have begun to think of light as a supplement. 
not just your regular lighting. Humans were never meant to be dark indoor. We were always meant to be in the sunlight. So uh, lighting companies are now wondering whether illuminating a space with specific wavelengths of light at specific times of the day is going to be more therapeutic. And you see this already with airline travel. So if you're traveling you know, long distances, they don't turn on the lights anymore. They actually phase in different colors of light so that you wake up to a more pleasant experience. And I think that's a recognition of what light can do to wellness and your normal biology. Just to backtrack for a moment, what was that type of sensing called, that quantum sensing you were talking about? What was it called? Q-U-O-R-O-M, quorum sensing. Quorum sensing. What was that about again? That is how bugs talk to each other. So bugs can either physically touch each other and talk to each other, or they can secrete small molecules that can talk to each other. Can they emit light when they're talking to each other? That's a very, very interesting question. If you think about it, every chemical reaction that occurs in our body or in the bug involves energy. And one of the ways the energy is transferred is an emission of a photon. Again, this becomes uh, very uh, hazy when you start thinking about, do human beings produce light? And the answer is a resounding yes. There are some fascinating studies where people have looked at biophotonic emissions, very, very low level biophotonic emissions, which you need, you know, really sophisticated, expensive equipment to measure. And that has been a big limitation in the field, to be completely honest. These cameras are just like regular digital cameras, but you can measure that our light emission goes up and down during a normal day cycle, day night cycle. And the question is, can we optimize it? Can we provide light at the right time? And they did this very, very interesting study in cancer patients where they gave them green light in the mornings and they found that breast cancer patients who were getting chemotherapy actually had less depression when they got green light in the morning just before they got chemo. Not only what kind of light and how much light, but when you give the light is becoming an increasing focus of the field. That's perfect that you brought that up because that was one of my questions. Does the timing of your photobiomodulation treatment matter? And I asked that because there's some recent research I'm sure you're very familiar with that came out months ago about treating the eye with red light for five minutes and they did it in the morning and they got significant increase in color acuity and vision acuity for an entire week from that one five-minute treatment in the morning. But then they did the exact same thing but the treatment was in the afternoon and they got zero benefit. So I'd love if you have more information or insight into timing, because I get this question all the time, does timing matter if when I do my red light therapy, so to speak, treatments? It seems to show that the mitochondria do respond to light during different periods of the day. And I'm sure that can change from organ to organ, tissue to tissue. So again, Dr. Arani, I'd love to get your input on timing and if it matters or not. Absolutely. So I think uh, I just cited that other breast cancer patient and I was aware of the vision study as well. So it looks like, and I think there's growing evidence now, that light treatment will either synergize with your normal biophotonic rhythm or in some cases antagonize it. And a good example of that is blue light after 6 p.m., right? There's a reason why all our smartphones and our devices now are standard with blue light filters, which turn on at, you know, six o'clock or 10 o'clock, whatever you're calling uh, day and night. And there is lots of good studies on that, on why that light is bad for you after a particular amount of time. So it would go by that same logic that certain light wavelengths are better for you at specific times of the day. What that implies biologically seems to be at three different levels. And this is where it gets a little technical and I apologize for that. But mitochondria is one 
organ which has one enzyme which we very well understand, cytochrome C oxidase, which is light sensitive. It's just like rhodopsin in the eye. But in neurons and in other cell types, there are light sensitive receptors which conduct pain. And if you inactivate them with blue light, which is very popular, but also red light and infrared light at a slightly different dose, you can actually start seeing inhibition of pain transmission. For tissue healing, there is a completely separate molecule which is present outside the cell. And this is actually our original contribution to the field. Our lab described this molecule called TGF, beta-1, which is a growth factor. And when you activate this growth factor, it can not only improve tissue healing, but it can also program local stem cells to actually help with regeneration. So not only the timing of the day, but also which chromophore, that's the technical term for the molecule that is being light activated. Uh, if you start thinking about when you want to activate it and where you want to activate, we will start getting more reproducible clinical outcomes. And is that a direction this photobiomodulation research is heading? I mean, this is a topic I know you're passionate about, and we can get to it as far as research needing to be, uh, as you put it, reproducibility, consistency versus making it a point-and-shoot therapy. So we can talk about that in a moment. But my question now is, is the research headed that direction where timing is becoming more so part of the research along with whatever it is studying? Yeah. So this is the great thing about our treatment. If this treatment was a hoax or pseudoscience or snake oil, it would not have survived so long. And that, that, that speaks for itself. People are benefiting from this treatment, even though it's not mainstream medicine. People are benefiting from this treatment every day. If only for their wellness, not, we're not even talking about chronic disease. If only for their improving their wellness and health, this treatment is wonderful. What if we could do it in a much more consistent way, right? Let's say for a diabetes, we have a specific protocol. For Parkinson's, we have a specific protocol. We can only improve the therapeutic response further. The question is how? The easy question, according to our lab, is which wavelength of light, how much of light, because we have very, very specific biological markers and pathways that we know are either therapeutic, such as the cytochrome C oxidase, TRPV1 for pain, TGF beta for wound healing. So we have very specific molecules that we know are good to get turned on so that we get good therapeutic response. But we also now understand that when you put too much light, you don't cause damage, but you negate the beneficial responses. And that, unfortunately, is why this field has been stuck with this inconsistency. As a clinician, it is my job and my interest to give you maximum therapeutic benefit. I tend to, unfortunately, overtreat because it's a very innocuous treatment. Especially with the laser, it's much easier to exceed this therapeutic threshold than with an LED, which is much more forgiving. The therapeutic window for an LED is much larger. With the laser, it's much, much shorter. But the laser is much more efficient in many of the studies that we have seen. I think the question is, if we understand the molecular pathways, can we fine-tune how much light, which wavelength of light, and when we want to treat? And I think the field is going in that direction. And yeah, you're preaching exactly you know, what I tell my audience and my followers. That biphasic dose response, where it's easy to think more is better, and to your point, it's not like you're going to do damage per se, but you might not be getting the benefits you're looking for if you were to tone it back. But of course, that depends on what you're treating. And so that's where it gets a little, people get caught in the weeds because it's a relatively simple technology, yet the nuances, if you want your treatments to be as effective and as efficient as possible, they do take some tweaking with the type of light, like you said, the distance, which 
dictates the the light power. So how many joules is your body absorbing? And, and that differs from treating mental health to improving athletic performance, to sleep, to thyroid. And so that's where it gets a little technical, so to speak. So I think that's definitely one of the sticking points for people who are just trying to dip their toes into this modality. So from that point of view, from your expertise, how would you explain to people to start using this modality without making it too confusing or complex, if that makes sense? So I think the best example, there are technical terms, but I think one of the best examples to give is near-infrared light that folks use for sauna, right? All of us love sitting in that because it makes, it gives you that warmth feeling. If you have pain somewhere, it improves your range of motion and you know that it makes you feel good. That is counterintuitive for photobiomodulation because any form of heat will start negating the PBM benefit. So we know that photobiomodulation is a non-thermal effect. And if you use too much light or too long, uh, you will actually start going into the thermal regime, which may make you feel good, but you're actually negating your PBM responsiveness. So we always cite that example of something that folks are very familiar with. Many people actually use these sauna bulbs or lamps to do photobiomodulation. And the difference there is they are designed to generate heat while your PBM devices are not meant to do that. If you look at the FDA regulation, it says non-heating heating lamp. I think that's what it says. I think the point we're trying to make here is that it's easy to exceed the door. Going back to what you were saying about the Anschul's curve, many of the clinicians tend, at least the naive clinicians who are starting in the field, tend to over-treat because they're not seeing a difference. The client doesn't see a difference. So why don't we do something longer so that they feel better? But that is very counterintuitive because that will actually make it not so good. How do you know when to stop is a great question, right? If, if, it, if there's nothing changing, how do you know when to join? In the lab, we answer that with very, very specific molecular markers, which are obviously not feasible in a you know clinical setting, a regular clinical setting. But there are broad ranges of recommendations that are now available, and they are based on a lot of these research studies. So the field is going towards more precise dosimetry in terms of which wavelength of light, how much light, how much time of treatment. How many times should be repeated? So I think you mentioned uh, the light improvement in vision for a week and then it faded away. We have realized that even with our regular treatment, we do clinical studies with concussion. We do studies with implants and, you know, different diseases. Folks need to be treated repeatedly. Like we, some of our cancer patients are treated twice a month on uh, maintenance, but they are actively treated when they have the disease. Again, if you think about it in terms of practice building, it's a great tool because, you know, patients come back, but it is necessary. It's just like a supplement. You don't pop a supplement one day and it takes care of you for your lifetime, right? You need to keep taking it in. Similarly, I think we are thinking about light as that. So you need to be on a maintenance treatment, even if you're not actively being treated for a disease. So so for someone who wants to use photobiomodulation, just as uh, to your point, a health and wellness maintenance tool, anti-aging, whatnot, what would a very general treatment paradigm look like? How many times per week break it down for us? I'm kind of curious because like you and I yeah. have kind of pointed out here, it doesn't take a lot to receive really the benefits you're looking for. So what would your general consensus be there? I can give you one specific example. So concussion, right? People who have had either a sports injury or a road traffic accident. Those are the major patients we see. 
but also battle injuries, which we don't have access to, but many people are treating. Those are, I think, the most acute cases where we have used PBM. And in those cases, we treat as often as three times a week for at least four to six weeks. And then we see some therapeutic benefit and we put them on once or twice a month maintenance so that they get the benefit. In contrast to that, the most acute other treatment we do is for cancers because they're getting chemo or radiation sometimes every day for a week. And those guys are being treated for five days a week throughout the treatment regime. Both of them have been shown to be effective. And we are very careful that we don't exceed the duration of treatment. So we don't go into the thermal regime and overdose the patient. We have all realized in the field that there are some cumulative benefits of doing repeated treatments. And sometimes it's not practically possible to do it every day. When you have an acute disease, we recommend doing it at the very least three times a week so that they get the maximal benefit. And sometimes we send them home with self-treatment devices, LED-based self-treatment devices, which also helps keep them in the same dose range. Some treatments we have had success by doing it once and watching the change for 15 days to 20 days when we again do another treatment or we supplement with home treatments. So there are, again, a disease pathology-based process that has to be addressed. And we are reaching that level of precision medicine with photobiomodulation because we understand which chromophores are active in which cell types. If you have an infected wound, you probably have a lot of macrophages and lymphocytes. If you have a nice clean surgical wound, let's say a planned surgical procedure, most of them are going to be fibroblasts and epithelial cells. And we, knew, we now understand that each one of them has a different dose to optimize their function. So you brought up a lot of great points there. I just want to reiterate one of them, which is basically if you're dealing with an acute injury, you should be stacking more of these photobiomodulation treatments together, meaning let's say daily for a week and then maybe taper off. Whereas to your point, if you're just doing maintenance, then it's much more spread out on a consistent basis. Is that kind of the general theme? Yeah. So both for maintenance as well as for wellness, right? How We get this question all the time. How often should I, a lot of people love these light beds now and they're like, how often should I go in? Minimal time and maximum time, depending on their routines. At the very least, we say once a week or at least once in two weeks will give you the maximal benefit because you're doing a global treatment, you know, targeting the back or the neck. And this is becoming a huge thing for long COVID. A lot of people who are, you know, recovering from COVID have this generalized fatigue and brain fog and, you know, generalized feeling of non-wellness or, you know, some kind of fatigue, just not a good state of health. Just this generalized treatments not only improves their muscular performance, but also their uh, you know, depression states and their cognitive functions. And those folks we recommend at least once a week, at least for four weeks to see some benefit. And I don't want to beat a dead horse here, Dr. Arani, but what I'm hearing between your last two answers is basically, especially if you're doing full body treatments, once a week is more than adequate as far as a health and wellness and maintenance regime. Is that correct? Because I know a lot of people get in the mindset that they need to do it every single day or even four or five times a week of full body treatment. But you're saying once a week, maybe once every two weeks, and you're going to have some really nice, and like you said, accumulative benefits as you continue to do that over time. But that yeah, so, could be more than enough. So we have colleagues who make canopies of life. We have colleagues who make you know beds of life. We are a research group, so we don't actually make devices. And we get asked this question all the time, what's the optimal dose in my device? And again, it boils down to how much light is coming out of these devices. There are devices which are like panels that you can put or you have, you know, whole beds or you have canopies, half a bed. And the question is, 
how much light is coming out how much light are you getting as a person right you're you're, you're so much distance from that uh, light source and then how long are you doing these treatments so if you're doing a whole body treatment for let's say 10 to 15 minutes that should be more than enough for a week if not two weeks in some cases but again we are talking about you know a, a person from the street who's doing who has a good diet who has you know rec- exercises once or twice a week and for them that's more than enough now if you switch that scenario to like an athlete or someone who's you know a soldier who needs peak physical performance their demands are much higher and their ask of their bodily functions is much higher so those guys will actually have a very very different diet uh much much more rigorous uh, physical training and they would actually benefit more from this light both as an as a performance i wouldn't say enhancer but optimizer but also in terms of you know keeping their neurocognition going that's something that we don't often talk about uh, athletes are excellent at thinking and executing and their mind is a big part of their performance right it's just not the attitude but also the ability to problem solve or you know uh, stare down you know stressful situations those those require mental skills and this treatment seems to do both a whole body treatment or an array treatment can have long lasting benefits but the demand or the timing will depend on what you're asking often that makes a lot of sense and it's very multifactorial like you said the person's health status what they're trying to treat what their activity level is and infinitum uh with all the variables so yeah it's kind of a loaded question but i and the audience definitely get a better sense Uh, with that answer another variable and i get this question a lot is basically body size meaning i have an infant or i have a kid what should these treatment paradigms or treatment protocols look like compared to the ones for quote unquote adults so i'd love to hear your thoughts on that a lot of people think children are smaller adults uh, and uh, not just by the body size but also by the physiology but that is as we know not true medically they are actually unique in many of their metabolic needs as well as they do well on candy and all of, all of us eat candy and we become obese right that's a good example i guess of diet and nutrition but also exercise they have so much energy and uh, we would give anything to get that kind of energy back into our lives but so we have different metabolic needs and that's just one aspect of it but the metabolic needs are different when you're a child versus when you're an adult you don't hear too many kids taking supplements health supplements right uh, if any at all uh, or probiotic yogurts so uh, it's usually when you reach middle age when you start thinking about these healthy benefits and i think light is no exception so we should be thinking about light in the same way do they need the same amount of energy probably not not based on their size but also on their metabolic and their biological needs uh, does it work in the adult dosing regime at the moment the answer is yes have we optimized it no i think there is a lot of space where less again in those cases might be even better and and we learned this from oral mucositis again so pediatric patients actually get the same adult pbm dose that everyone gets in the world right now and they are they are doing fine they're doing well can we make it even better we need to dose them in the right way so we have to actually back down on the dose further that is not intuitive going going down a dose is not intuitive right exactly it's counterintuitive we think more is better <laughs> <laughs> for for whatever reason that's just human nature but just to confirm dr arani it sounded like that answer was more so tailored to for people to want to use it on their infants or kids for for a health and maintenance tool but if their kid has some sort of you know disease or illness and they're trying to utilize red light therapy would your answer be the same that 
for the time being, based on the research, you would just utilize the same protocols that you would for for adult-sized humans versus toddlers or kids? So at the moment, the answer is yes. The World Association of Photobiomodulation, Walt, is still currently, as of now, as of the moment, writing protocols for adults for cancer care. We have identified nine different areas where we know this treatment works very effectively. Cancer care being number one, neuromuscular performance a combined area being number two, dentistry, various other areas, ophthalmology for a vision. All these areas we know the PBM affects adults very, very therapeutically. We have not yet reached the level of sophistication or we haven't committed time yet to actually dose it back to pediatric children populations. But yes, to answer your question at the moment, follow the adult PBM dosing with. Perfect. Understood. Um, along the same general topic, I get this question a ton as well. For for females, of course, that are pregnant, is it safe? If so, or if not, you know, what, what considerations should be taken? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, going back to that cancer question, we don't want to do any harm in these very, very susceptible populations. All the evidence to date suggests that it is safe in cancers and in pregnant women. We still do not recommend it directly on the tumor or on the womb in a pregnant woman. And as you know, pregnant women have backache. They have all kinds of other face flushing and other swollen ankles. And we know that light treatment is very helpful for these things. But we do not recommend treating the womb with the light. But those other peripheral areas will still benefit from the treatment. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. Uh, Moving on to a, a different topic. Treatments for melanated skin versus non-melanated. And I ask this because some of the research I've looked up on on pet health shows a drastic difference in the dosages for for animals, let's say a dog with dark fur versus a dog with light fur. You need dramatically more light for the dark fur versus the light fur. So I'm wondering, and I got this question when I was at a couple of different conferences. So that's why I bring it to you. So does a person with melanated skin need significantly more light to get the same effect as someone with non-melanated skin? So the answer is actually, again, not very intuitive because you would know that darker skin will absorb light much more efficiently. And that's been shown 101 photobiology. You have something that absorbs light. You can take do this experiment. Take a piece of white paper, paint half of it black, paint half of it white. Put it in the sunlight and see which one gets warmer, right? Obviously the black one because it's absorbing light. It is not so intuitive for photobiomodulation because the light being absorbed does not necessarily mean it is more therapeutic. It is unfortunately being neutralized on its way to the therapeutic promophora target. And that is why the, the feeling in the field is that the skin tone, and we are going back to 101 dermatology, Fitzpatrick scales, one to five, one to six, and we have started adjusting our dose based on experiments we have done in the lab. A simple example is uh, we use these mice in the uh, lab called uh, C57 Black 6. So there are black furred mice. So even when you shave them and nair them, they actually have a whole spectrum of different colors on their skin. And if you do the same PBM dose, we see significant differences between wound healing in, you know, in the same uh, spectrum of uh, animals from the same cage, right? So in human patients, as people have noted, you need different doses to be more effective as long as you don't exceed that thermal threshold. As you can imagine, a darker skin will get absorbed light more efficiently, but it will get warmer very quickly. And that is not helpful. So you need to back off on your dosing. People have tried skin cooling, especially when they do hair removal. It has come from that field where they have seen that if you cool the skin 
and then do you know light treatment, you can be more effective at delivering an amount of dose. But you must not exceed that Anshul's curve. But it's becoming an increasing recognition in the field that we will have, we will need different treatment for different uh, skin tones in patients or even different parts of our body. Sure, yeah. sure. And yeah, because I was going to say for, for people with darker skin, their hands and palms are less melanated. So would that be a better place to target for photobiomodulation? I got asked that by one of my customers over in Bermuda and that, that brought up a whole other thought for me. And that, that's a good point. So what are your thoughts on that? Would that's that be good for people with darker skin? Yeah. So that's a very, very good question. And the reason for that, these questions and people have done experiments to try and validate this. So uh, going back to that Australian group, uh, John Mitrofonis, uh, who did a very, very interesting experiment. So he took animals and injected them with a toxin that causes the basal ganglia cells to degenerate. And again, with ethical approval and all care, this experiment was done to mimic Parkinson's patients because they get tremors. He covered the animal, the body of the animal, and treated the head where you get the actual lesion. And the animals got better. And that is a striking result by itself. In patients, when we treat them, we are not controlling for a lot of factors. But in animal studies, animals don't pretend to get better, right? They either get better or they don't. So the only treatment he did was light. And they did not get the tremors. All the biological cytokines were reversed. Then he did a fascinating experiment where he put the head of the animal in a foil, right? He covered it with foil. And then he treated the body of the animal. The question is, where should we be doing photobiomodulation to actually get maximal benefit? And this is not at all, again, very intuitive. We would think where the lesion is, is where we would want to do the treatment. But I think we're getting increasing evidence that it's an overall systemic benefit from photobiomodulation. And if you don't know where the exact lesion is, let's think about, let's say, multiple sclerosis or fibromyalgia, right? Where do we treat the patient along the spine, base of the neck? Where do you want to treat these patients? Turns out we don't have to worry. If you actually put them in a bed or a canopy or a large light array, we can actually get as much benefit as trying to target them. There is a rationale for targeting light treatment, let's say arthritic knee. You might want to actually target the amount of light. But there are conditions which are generalized where a broad treatment would be equally, if not more beneficial. And just to clarify, Dr. Arani, because you, you, there was a slight breakup, right? As you were saying the answer to the second part of the research, but I'm guessing based on what you said is that they covered uh, the head and foil, did full body, got the same results. Is that what you said? Yeah. Gotcha. So like you're saying for issues or conditions or pathologies that are dealing with systemic inflammation or autoimmune Doing full body is probably your best bet because it, it shows... When you don't know where you want to target, it seems like a whole body would work better. Got you. That's interesting. Just to wrap it up here, because we're getting close on time here. Can you talk to us about, and this is something you're potentially a current project you're working on, is this new multi-wavelength dose concept for photobiomodulation termed photonic fluence or Einstein. Could you please expound on that? Right. So this is the, again, in an attempt to try and improve consistency in our clinical responses, we've been asking the question, why do some people get better results with red light or infrared light or green light or blue light? And all of them show benefits, right? So it can't be that one light source is better than the other. And we have done these experiments with LEDs, with lasers, even with broadband lights with the right filters. And we see some response. Some are more efficient than the others. And again, uh, we can control a lot of these things. And as, especially when you talk to a global audience, they may not have access to that exact wavelength of light 
or that device? And then how do you do the treatments uh, in different places? This question prompted us to start thinking about a photon and how much energy it carries, right? A red light, if you think about it, is right in the middle of the spectrum of PDM, a visible light and near-infrared, while near-infrared spans the other end and blue light spans the other far end. If you look at the amount of energy that a blue photon carries and a red photon carries and a near-infrared carries, they are almost two to three-fold apart. But when we talk about the Arnschulz curve, we are talking about, let's say, three joules. That's a famous number. Three joules per centimeter square for wound healing. We don't specify which wavelength of light we are using. And the reason red and infrared have been popular is simply because they were easily available. Uh, most of the literature is 660 and 810 because those were the devices that were always available for doing these studies. Uh, Mike Hamblin's work, Guanita Anders' work, Jan Bjorel's work, all these guys who are pioneers in the field have always done it with those wavelengths. To try and figure out now that we have so many other wavelengths, we started adding that very small amount of energy of individual photons into the calculations and found that if we start adjusting very, very little treatment times, right, um, just increasing 30 seconds, reducing 20 seconds, we started finding much more consistent results in between the wavelengths. And that concept is called photonic fluence, where you're adding the photon energy to the regular irradiance, milliwatts per centimeter square into time calculations. You simply add the photon energy. We quickly realized that that's great because we're getting more consistent results with all the different wavelengths, but it still doesn't solve the problem that I like 810, you like 660, and the other guy in Europe likes you know, blue light for his pain treatments. So how do we start talking in the same language? So it turns out that people in greenhouses, artificial solar aims, have started talking about efficiency of photosynthesis in terms of photonic fluence. And we didn't know that till I started reading the literature. And we quickly found out that they had coined a term, Einstein. It's not our term. It's something that they had already coined to talk about how these solar lamps can be made more efficient by simply tweaking the wavelengths. Canada gets some ambient light, while some places down south in the US will not get as much of the same wavelength. So how can we improve photosynthesis in both those places? They started tweaking their lamps to improve efficiency. So we borrowed this concept from them because it came from our lab and we love 810. We proposed that as one of the ways of trying to standardize the field because we are very confident about our wavelength for stem cell regeneration. And uh, we use the photonic fluence at 810 as a reference, and we coined the term Einstein to refer to that. So hopefully what this does for the field, at least for the tissue regeneration and stem cell field, we start looking at whichever wavelength of light that you're using or have access to and adjust it, tweak the dosing so you're using the same wavelength that works in our hands and several other labs around the world. And we are, again, all on the same page. We think of this as harmonization of dosimetry and PBM. So it's a way, like you just said, of standardizing across all these different researchers, because that's one of the issues is so many people either using different wavelengths or different intensities because they're different devices for the same issue. The majority of the research seems to be positive, like you're getting results, but it's tough to really have a finite or precise protocol or, or, or treatment paradigm when they're all using slightly different parameters. So you're saying this is a way that's going to help standardize treatments across research. Is that correct? That is correct. And, and most importantly, because PBM has become a global phenomenon, and unfortunately, the same wavelength of the device is not available everywhere. And I'm sure you have seen this literature. A lot of the good literature is actually 
not from the US. And we have limited devices that we use. So how do we optimize our devices to the protocols that we know is successful, you know, in Brazil or in Europe or in Asia? And and the so it'll improve the consistency of our clinical outcomes if we simply tweak this. And it might be as simple as changing the treatment time. Uh, because that is one of your major parts of your equation is treatment time. The irradiance, obviously, we don't usually change much of because it starts generating heat, the milliwatts per centimeter square. Uh, but the time treatment time is easy to tweak. So by just backing off 10 seconds or increasing it by 40 seconds, we are seeing dramatically improved clinical outcomes. That makes sense. That's what I'm excited about is seeing as research goes forward, things showing more consistency across the same pathology so we can get more and more robust and strong results for all these different ways that photobiomodulation can be used. And one last question before we kind of sign off here, Dr. Arani, do you think as photobiomodulation research continues to move forward, we will find that specific wavelengths will be more efficacious for certain pathologies, let's say 660 versus, versus even 665 or 664? Do you think that's kind of a direction that the research could be headed as well? Yeah, so that's a fascinating question, and we're doing a lot of research in this space. And there are folks, I, I don't know if your audience is familiar with this, but there are people who are using scanning wavelengths. So you can actually tune the light source, especially a laser, to actually scan between 600 and 700. It just scans all, you know, 661, 662, 663. But again, it's doing it for a very short period of time. And sometimes it looks like the shoulders of a peak are as important as the peak. So there are certain photobiological responses that can be optimized by using a specific wavelength. Does that integrate into an overall wellness? That's a million dollar question. And I don't think we have a clean answer to that yet. But my intuition is that we will be going towards wavelength specific recommendations, not in this round of recommendations from Walt, but maybe another five years or 10 years down the line, we'll actually start talking. At this point, we are only trying to understand why are different places getting more consistent results than the others. And we can't pin it down to a very specific wavelength yet. It seems to be the dose that's predominating. But it would be very intuitive to think about a specific wavelength for a specific disease, just like we are thinking about a specific device for a specific disease. Uh, not so much for the light source, but the way it's being delivered. So there are you know, curved devices for your neck or for your knee. Uh, a flat array for your back or your lower back or your face, you know, if you can have a, like a face mask, uh, it would just make treatment such much more consistent than, you know, using a probe in five different places. That is not going to improve your consistency. So moving towards a device for a disease, a PBM device for a disease is something that we are actively seeing a lot of. Whether it will also be a wavelength specific response, we don't know yet, but I would suspect that will be true. Gotcha. No, very interesting. And uh, yeah, appreciate your insight on all those questions, uh, Dr. Arani. Appreciate your time. Appreciate all of your contribution to the photobiomodulation field. Uh, really excited to see where it goes the next five to 10 years, as you mentioned. Uh, lastly, is there anything else you want to mention? And then where can people go to find and learn more about you and the research that you're doing? Yeah, so well, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, it's great to be uh, talking to an audience that wants to know more about this treatment and is clearly benefiting a lot from that. So we publish all kinds of scientific papers, but unfortunately, that audience is very, very restricted because they're usually academic people who don't believe in the treatment. So I think it's nice to talk to the stakeholders, the real beneficiaries of this treatment. Places to find it, obviously, would be, uh, I would strongly recommend the World Association, which is a very large 
uh, organization that focuses on the most robust treatments and the recommendations. I would also make a plug-in for all the PBM manufacturers who are actually uh, making devices, right? So most of us are academicians and uh, you know clinicians who are trying to do treatments, but people who actually make the device uh, usually do a great job of finding the light literature and presenting it to the audience. So that would be my secondary source of information, but a good starting point for someone who wants to learn more about the field. And I would recommend, obviously, the scientific meetings that we organize on a very routine basis where the most uh, cutting-edge research and the latest evidences are actually collected and presented. Our research is on our website at the university. So I'm at the university at Buffalo, so you can find us there. Perfect. Appreciate that. And again, Dr. Praveen Arani, appreciate your time, appreciate your contribution. Hopefully we can speak again in the future because I feel like we could unpack even <laughs> a lot more information in another hour's worth. But, but for the time being, uh, appreciate your time. And for Dr. Praveen Arani, this is Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off of the Red Light Report. Everybody have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of Red Light Therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop in our YouTube channel, BioLite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.